You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Matt Nickerson. Uh, You may have seen me around before. It's been a month. Hey, thanks. I've been out. Of, I was on a study break, read a number of books, took a little mini vacation, got to spend time with the family. It was glorious. For those of you who are visiting, we've had a number of visitors the last few weeks. They're like, oh, there's another guy? So uh, just glad to be back with you. And uh, welcome everybody watching online or listening, watching later in the week. We just want to welcome you. So glad you're here with us today. So on that break, I reread a book that I read a few years ago. It was really, really good. And they used this illustration. So what happened was a bunch of psychologists wanted to find out what the human limits were for uh, self-control. And so what they did it is they concocted this cool little study where they gathered a bunch of college students and they had no idea what they were studying. In fact, they lied to them and told them what we're going to study is the way that your, your taste buds kind of distinguish between tastes. We're testing your taste patterns. Say that 10 times fast, right? Testing taste patterns. Okay, anyway, so they split them into two groups and they told both groups, come hungry. It don't eat for at least three hours ahead of when we kind of do this test. So they brought them into the room, and they kind of explained, this is what we're doing, and on the table in front of these groups, each group broke down into small teams, they had a plate of radishes and a plate full of chocolate chip cookies and chocolates. Personally, I think right after um, Grater's chocolate ice cream, the, the chocolate chunks, this is, this is glorious right here. In heaven, you will find these in every corner. But anyway, it's dove dark. So, I don't know what they used in their study, but they basically gave them two plates. Group A, they said this, we need you to eat at least two chocolate chip cookies and as many chocolates as you would like as a part of our study. What we're going to do is follow up with you tomorrow because radishes and chocolate have extremely different um, sensations on your tongue. We want to follow up and ask you some questions. But here's the thing, you are not allowed to touch the radishes. Group A had no problem. Group B, however, was brought in, given the exact same scenario in reverse order, as you can imagine. And they were told, we need you to eat at least two radishes, but do not, under any circumstances, touch the chocolate or the cookies. Guess who had an easier time? Ironically, both were fine. As far as they could tell, neither seemed more agitated than the other. Both groups did exactly what they were asked to do. I don't remember how long they had them sit there. It was like a a half hour or so. And here's the point. So what they did then is after that half hour, 35 minutes, whatever it was, they brought in another group of researchers who explained to the students that they were running a completely different study, also a lie. They told them, we want to study and find out are college students more adept at solving geometric puzzles than high school students. The reason they lied to them is so that the college students would puff out their chests full of pride and go, oh, bring it. And they would give their best effort. What they did next was they gave them a geometric shape that was very complex, a stack of paper, like a pen or a pencil, and said, we want you to trace this geometric shape. You cannot pick up your pen or pencil, and you can never go back over the same line twice. Now, the point of the study was to find out their self-control abilities. What they found was group A, who had chocolate chip cookies and chocolate, lasted 19 minutes and roughly 34 tries before they finally gave up. The whole thing was impossible. You couldn't actually solve the geometric puzzle. They didn't tell them that. The radish group, guess how long they lasted? On average, eight minutes. 
less than half the time. And anybody who had a parent who made you finish your dinner before you left the table knows exactly what they're talking about. Now, what the psychologist concluded was that uh, our self-control has a limit. And since the radish group had already depleted their self-control, when it came to the next exercise, it was also strenuous. They did not have the ability to push through. They didn't care as much. They'd already depleted themselves of the muscle control necessary to keep going at the task. I think that's extremely relevant because today as we talk about suffering, though it is a very small, insignificant way, you would not actually consider suffering. But when we look at it, the same effect takes part on our brain. Most of us ask a question at some point about God. We might even make a statement about God, and it might sound a little bit like this. A good God wouldn't let bad things happen. And the implication of the statement is a good God wouldn't let bad things happen to me or good people. Because by nature, we all tend to think of ourselves as good people. And our judge of this or our rationale for this is we're not genocidal, we're not homicidal, we're not maybe even suicidal, we've left all, all the idols, so therefore, we must be good people. The Bible, though, has a little bit of a different message for us. A couple months ago, I was in Peru, and uh, we weren't talking about radishes or cookies. I was in my backseat of a car, and it's a crazy story. It's somebody else's story. I can't get into it, but I, I was in the backseat of the car with an intern at the orphanage where we were working in Peru, and she was from Germany. She was working in Peru, and she was our translator for the day because my missionary friend couldn't be with us. He'd already gone on these trips multiple times. He needed to get some office work done. As we're sitting in the car, our conversation eventually led to her basically making this statement, why did God let it happen? Why didn't he stop it? I realize there's kids in the room or there may be people watching at a beach online, we forgive you. <laughs> and so I'll be very careful with what I say, but the it she's referring to is that when she was four, year old, four years old, her eight-year-old brother did some unspeakable things to her. She came to the conclusion that likely somebody had also done the same things to him. He was living out what he had been taught, but it didn't reduce her pain. You know, when we're talking about radishes, it seems funny. But when we're talking about real pain, real suffering, divorce, cancer, death or sickness of a child and a loved one, paralyzing financial crises, anxiety, Suicide, it's not so funny, is it? It's real. But I think the same principle is at work. Most of us live our lives day to day in a cookie world. Lack of analogy. And when life is sweet and things are good, we're not too stressed about the pain in the world. We may think about it, we may philosophize about it, but we don't live it. But when the pain comes home, and we're the ones trading the sweets for the, I don't know what you call the radish. When we're the one living in the midst of the suffering, that question becomes very, very, very real. And for some of us, paralyzing. And for some, they can't get past it to get to God because they can't find an answer to the question. 
I spent much of the rest of that week talking with this young lady, invited some of the Kingsway people into the group. We never even got to finish the conversation. We flat ran out of time. And here's what I'm realizing. I've been agonizing all week. I'm the one who picked this topic for my first message back after a study break. Don't know what I was thinking. This topic needs four to six weeks. To do justice to it in 35 minutes is nearly impossible, and I'm sorry for anybody who's really suffering today who does not find the answer today adequate. I'm not surprised. I don't even blame you. But I'm going to ask, instead of getting angry at God or giving up on God or giving up on church or giving up on Kingsway, would you just stay with the question? Next year, I will do everything I can if I can make it fit in the series to do a Job series, and we'll spend four to six weeks really chewing on this question and trying to answer it adequately together. But today, what I want to give you is an anchor, an anchor for your soul, something you can grab onto and hold onto in the midst of the storms and say, you know what, God, I don't have all the answers, but I've got this anchor that's going to keep me grounded and rooted, and that's what I want to give you today. You know, we can ask this question in a lot of different ways. We can ask it like this, why do good things happen to bad people? You can even flip it. Why do bad things happen to good people? Many people will say things like, why is God making me suffer? Others may, if they have faith, may reward it. Why is God allowing me to suffer? Some people may say, I'm a good person. Why isn't God blessing me? And then you may, some of you may even get to the point where you're verbalizing it the way I verbalized it for years. When I lost my first baby back in like 2003-04 range, I found myself very angry at God and confused. And I literally said, I'm your full-time servant, God. Like, I work for you full-time. That's what I do. I do good things for you all the time. Like, why are you letting me suffer like this? And the implication is, God, you owe me one. After all the times that I pushed through radishes for you, couldn't you give me a cookie just once? I know it sounds silly, but that's what was in my heart. Well, here's the thing, and here's what I told this young lady. I don't feel like any of these questions do justice to the real problem. The real problem is so much deeper, so much bigger than we can really understand. Because here at Kingsway, we are, uh, we are Christians, and what we mean by that is um, we, we believe that the God is who he says he is, and he is who he's revealed himself to be. And we believe the place to find that is not in my idea or your idea. It's not in nature. It's not in all these self-help books that exist in the world today. It's through what we call the Word of God, that God has literally revealed himself to us through the Word of God. We believe that the Bible was written by different authors inspired by the Holy Spirit, meaning that he guided and directed their words using their personality, their experience, and at times his direct leadership to speak through them to help us understand who God is. So what we want to do is say, God, who are you really? And here's the thing we learn when we open up the Bible. There are a lot of what we call omnis about God. And omni, O-M-N-I, basically means all. So you might say God is omniscient. He's all-knowing or omnipotent. He's all-powerful or omnibenevolent, meaning he's all-loving, he's all-good. And there are many, 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 many omnis. God is all-holy. He is all-righteous. He is all-just. And we don't have time to go into all of those. If you're really going to study suffering, you have to put God in his rightful place and really put him on the stand and ask those questions. But I want to deal with three of them today. Because really, if we want to deal with suffering, we have to ask the question, at least in this way, to get any progress at all. Here it is. You ready? If God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving, then why does he, you could fill in the blank with your own question from there. God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, then why does he... Now, here's the thing. When we ask the question this way, what we have to assume is God is not one of these three things or two of these three things or three of these three things or I wouldn't be suffering. Let's just take a look at them one by one for a minute. 
Number one, option one. God is all-loving and all-powerful, but he is not all-knowing. And what we mean by that is this. If God is all-loving and all-powerful, then he cares about me. He's intimately involved in my life. He's studying what's going on with me. He has the power to act on my behalf. That's why we believe in miracles and we pray. It's just he doesn't know what to do about my problem. And we could philosophize and justify and rationalize that all day long. Like, well, maybe Satan is a really cunning enemy. Maybe God is bound by free will. Maybe God is bound by fate or predetermined decisions. There's something that's messing him up that he just doesn't know what to do. He's like, I don't know, man, this is a tough one. I'll just bring you to heaven and make it all better. I'll put a Band-Aid on it in the end, and it'll all go away. So question, is God all-knowing or is he not? Now, I know I hear many Christians going, yes. But the truth is, there's some people who don't know. This is not a debate or a conversation about free will and sovereignty. That's not what we're getting into. But there are hundreds, literally hundreds of verses that inform us about God in this way. So what I want to do is just look at two, two, and realize I'm leaving out a bunch of them and conversation on all of them. But if you'll just let these two verses kind of lay the framework, I believe you will see that God is truly all-knowing. Now, here's what I want to say before I go through this, we're going to do two for each of these. I just want to recommend real quick, go look up these psalms especially. Go look up the psalms. Oh, so powerful. Some of these psalms, I'm like, oh, just preach on that. Man, this floor, you knock it to your knees. Man, it's just so good. All right. Psalm 147, verse 5 says this. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Now, I don't have time to dig into what the word understanding means, but the whole point of what this writer is trying to get to is God's understanding of his creation has no limit. There's no lid on God's understanding. He knows and understands all things. How about one more? Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 10. This is God speaking. He says this, remember the former things, those of long ago. Now, to an Israelite, he'd be talking about, say, Egypt, or perhaps Abraham, even the creation story. He's reminding them of how ways that he's acted in the past. He says, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God. There is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come, I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. So what the point of what God is trying to say is simply this. I am the prophetic God. Prophecy is what sets the God of the Bible apart from all those other gods that Brett talked about and did a wonderful job with last week. And there's many, many others in the world. Prophecy sets God apart because God knows the end for the beginning. And he says, and I'll let you know because I'm going to tell you I'm going to do this at this place at this time in this way. In fact, many historians look at the biblical text and go, there's no way that was written ahead of time. There's no way. Nobody could know that. Nobody could predict that. And we as believers say, well, of course. If there's a God who knows all things, then he can know the end from the beginning. And it's not a problem for him. And because of that, he can let you know what's going to happen when you need to know what's going to happen and if he can do that then he can know how to deal with your specific situation how can he know the end if he doesn't understand what he needs to do to get to the end and as he says in his own words my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please well that's a great statement about the power of God Maybe the power of God is the problem. Let's just take a look at it this way. So 
Maybe God is all-knowing, and maybe he is all-loving. The problem is that he's just not all-powerful. And again, we can find all kinds of ways to justify this, rationalize this, trying to deal with it. Maybe he made Satan too powerful. Maybe Satan has always been created, and even though the Bible doesn't teach that. And maybe they're, they're, they're co-equals. Satan is, instead of being a created being who's finite, he's an, he's a, he's a, he's an equal to God. And, and we're locked in this battle, and God just doesn't have the power to do anything about it. Or maybe God limited himself, and he gave us free will. So therefore, God really can't do things and act on our behalf because he's bound by our decisions or whatever it is. So does the Bible in any way teach that God is less than all-powerful? Again, hundreds and hundreds of options for verses. Here's two for you. Isaiah 43, verse 13 says this. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. This is God talking. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? And what God is saying is this, when I step into a situation, when I restore, when I redeem, when I save, no one will switch that around. No one will change that. Not cancer, not a disobedient child, not a boss who hates you, not your spouse, and not Satan. No spiritual being, no physical being. No disease is going to undo what I have determined will happen. So if God is the ultimate and he can determine things and nothing can undetermine it, is God lacking in power? No. Here's another one. Try this. Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is possible, but with God all things are possible. What we tend to do with verses like that is we go like this. We'll see in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is having a very specific conversation with a very specific person. He's asked a question about, well, gosh, this is impossible, God. And he says, no, no, see, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jesus is just being, uh, he's, he's using hyperbole. He's using the extreme. He's trying to make a point. He's not being literal. He doesn't mean all things are possible with God. I'm sorry. The Bible Bible tells us that a donkey talked to a dude. And you may be going, that's why I don't believe the Bible. I get it. I'm not saying that it doesn't sound crazy. The Bible's telling us that a whale swallowed a man, spit him out on dry land. Scientists tell us that's impossible. I know. The Bible tells us that, that God literally split water in two, made dry land. People walked across it. Scientists tell us it's not possible. I know. The Bible tells us that Jesus walked on water. Scientists try to tell us there must have been rocks in the water. He knew exactly where they were placed to walk on them. There's even a video going around Facebook of a dude who strapped like wood to his feet or something and ran on water for like five seconds. And maybe that's what Jesus did. It's not what it says. The Bible tells us that a virgin became pregnant. One of my friends has a few kids, four and 25, whatever it feels like, and he said... Um, Hey, we're having no more kids. I said, are you sure? He said, trust me, we made sure we're having no more kids. I said, Jesus made a virgin pregnant. He's like, you're not funny. <laughs> but with God, all things are possible. You know, we call them miracles for a reason. We don't know what to do with them. As a pastor, I've watched for years, doctors go, I can't explain it. All I know is this x-ray says this, this one says that. This test says this, this one says that. But if miracles were normal, we wouldn't call them miracles, right? I mean, I don't, I'm not saying it doesn't bring up lots of questions, but why does God perform a miracle for that person or not for this one? That's not today's subject. I don't have time to get there. 
But if we can just resolve for a minute that God is all-powerful, nothing is outside of his control. He can do anything he pleases to do. Then it's not an issue of power, and it's not an issue of wisdom. Then the only conclusion we can come to is what? He must not care enough about me to do anything. The reality is, if he loved me, he would act. Because he's all-knowing and he's all-powerful, but yet I'm suffering. And this is why I need multiple weeks to develop this with you. But if this is our thinking, then we look at God as like a deistic God. He created all that there is, and he set it in motion, and now he's out of the way. And he's all-powerful and he's all-knowing, but um, he's not good. If you got a pen or a pencil or your cell phone out, um, man, I highly recommend you write this book down. I wrote a book a few years ago with a recommendation of a, of a mentor of mine. It's called Delighting, Delighting, like to delight in something, Delighting in the Trinity. Phenomenal book. And it walks through the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and it, and it talks about why, as Christians, we believe this crazy-sounding mystery about God. We don't look at God and say they. We look at God and say he because God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. But because God is triune, three in one, one in three, we can't fully explain it. It's like the musketeers in a spiritual kind of way. Because of that, we believe that God has literally never been alone. God has always known community. See, if you take Allah, going to Brett's sermon last week, Allah, that's not his story. Allah is one. Even Islamic prophets will tell you, and they write, that God is not love. Allah is not love. That's huge. Because when your own prophets and your own apologists are saying that, it means something. And part of it is because the teachings of Islam tell you that the reason Allah created is he needed servants. He needed workers to do his bidding. But the Bible tells us the reason God created is because he's love and he wanted simply to love. He didn't need to love. He was fully complete in his love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He had complete community. He just so effervescent in his love. It just bubbles over out of him. He couldn't wait to share his love, his goodness with others. This is why when you read of love in the Bible, you cannot simply read a word. Love is not an emotion. Love is not teenage affection where you see somebody and you go, man, I'd love to spend some time with her. That's just a small portion. Love in the Bible is an action. It's a verb. It means something. So when you read verses on love in the Bible, you always get deep and rich meaning behind the action involved in them. This is why we're told, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So that you could never wonder, does God love me? Of course he does. Well, how can I know? Well, he gave you taste buds to enjoy food. He gave you sun to enjoy the day. He gave you rain to refresh the earth. I'm still not convinced, God, because I'm hurting. Well, then look at his son. Here's a couple verses for you. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. He's good. His love endures. He's faithful. Can I trust him? Yeah. Is he safe? 
No, he's not safe, but he is good. Psalm 145, verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. If you were to speak of your daddy on Father's Day and you were to say something great about him, wouldn't you say something like that? Oh, let me tell you what was great about my dad. He was faithful. He was always there. He worked so hard to provide for us. He showed up when everything was something was broke. He made sure it got fixed. And he was at our sporting events. I mean, if you had a good dad, these are the kind of things you say. Why? Because love does. That's what love is. Love is an action. It's not just a word. It's not just a feeling. It's not just an emotion. It's something that shows itself. So the Bible goes out of its way over and over and over again to convince you God is good and he loves you. The psalmist writes at one point, who am I that God is even mindful of me? And the whole point of such a phenomenal passage, the whole point is he's looking at the breadth and the depth of God's wisdom and creation and knowledge and power and he's like man I am so small in this big thing called time and eternity and creation but yet God tells me over and over again he's tuned in to the minor details of my life man it blows his mind who am I that God even cares David writes that he is fearfully and wonderfully made and there's nowhere on all of creation that he can go to escape God if he goes to the heights he's there if he goes to the depths he's there no matter where he seems to go to try to get away from God God's there and it's not a statement of oh man I just can't get away from this evil guy who wants to hurt me no it's and no matter where I go I can't outrun the love of God he loves me he loves me C.S. Lewis for years struggled with this idea he was an atheist for years. And one of the things he wrote, C.S. Lewis says this, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. How had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? So think about it. What C.S. Lewis is trying to say, and I get it. C.S. Lewis is really deep. You ever read his books? Man, they're phenomenal if you get them. If you don't, have somebody translate. So, translate. Here we go. C.S. Lewis is trying to say, why is it we all say something isn't fair and something isn't just? What are we comparing it to? What in your world, what in your experience of life have you ever known that was completely fair and completely just? Andy Stanley says once at a sermon, I heard him say that he tells his kids, you know what? Fairness ended in the garden. My job isn't to be fair. My job is to be just. I may not be fair. I'm going to be just. And that's the point. See, if you go all the way back to the garden, there was a place where we knew fairness. I mean, you and I never saw it. You and I never felt it. You and I never experienced it. But we've read of it. We've heard of it. And we long for it. Because see, in the garden, God made Adam and God made Eve, and he said to them, there's anything you want in this garden, enjoy it. Eat the food, eat the fruit, enjoy the animals. There's peace, there's love, there's joy, there's patience. Be fruitful and multiply. It's gonna be a glorious life that I've given you. Just one thing, obey me about this tree. Stay away from this tree. See, in the garden, we're told there's a tree of life, and, the, and we don't know exactly what it means, but this, this tree's fruit is phenomenal. We find out that tree pops up again in Revelation, and it's there, and it's beautiful, and it's glorious. And that the fruit from the tree will heal the nations. And there'll be no more crying and no more tears and no more suffering. See, we have these bookends of perfection in our lives. But in the middle, we don't know justice. And we don't know fairness. And we don't know what it feels like to live in a world that is truly safe. Where harm doesn't happen. And that's our pain. And that's our story. Because we all want to go back to the garden. But we can't go back to the garden. We can only go forward to paradise. And this is why. Jesus is God's answer to the problem. 
Jesus is God's answer. In fact, I would say Jesus is God's vindication because let's ask the question this way. If God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving, not why does he allow, why did he cause to me, but why did he allow his only begotten son, Jesus, to be crucified? God, you had all the power in the world to stop it. Jesus even says, I have the authority to call down all of heaven's armies and stop this right now, but I won't. It's not that God didn't have the wisdom to figure out some other path. Even Jesus says in the garden, notice in the first garden, God says, obey me about the tree. Adam failed. In the second garden, Jesus is in the garden. He says, Father, please, if there's any other way than the suffering, take the cup away from me. And God said, I'm with you. This is the way. And yet in that moment, God showed his love to us. If God did not withhold even suffering from his one and only son and yet raised him from the dead and brought him to life, how much more so for you and for me, whom he loves, will he redeem our suffering too? See, Jesus is the vindication because, get this, we see that God is love when we see Jesus hanging on the cross. We know God is love. But we see that God is powerful because Jesus didn't stay dead. If Jesus dies on the cross and he doesn't raise from the dead, he's no different than you or me. Big deal. We'll die one day too. But he rose from the dead. The greatest miracle of all time. Who can raise from the dead? Only God himself. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, he showed us that he is all-powerful, able to stomp out the darkness in our lives by also resurrecting us one day. And then when Jesus died on the cross and when he rose from the dead, Jesus said, I now send God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, to live inside you, therefore giving you the wisdom you need every day to live for God the way that God made you originally to live for him. So he showed us he has the power, the wisdom, and the love to do anything he needs to do for us to redeem our suffering in Jesus. And that is great news. You know, it's, yeah, you can clap for Jesus. You know, it's interesting. The tree of life, we see it in the garden in Genesis. We see it in the book of Revelation. In the end, when the garden is restored, there's only one other book in the Bible that we see it. Do you know where it is? You're all guessing, right? I see, we see hints of it in the gospel. Jesus died on a tree. We see hints of it in the gospel, John 10, 10. Jesus says, I am come to give them life, life that is really life. But the only other place a tree of life is referenced is in the book of Proverbs. That's a weird book. Why there? Because Proverbs is written to tell us how to deal with everyday life. How do I handle my business? How do I handle temptation? How do I handle my money? How do I handle my family? How do I live today? How do I work hard? How much work is too much work? It's an entire book written from God to tell you, here's what life looks like. If you really want to live for me, here's nuggets of wisdom to know how to get a glimpse, a handle on the garden that was lost in a moment of sin. What we really learn when we read the Bible from cover to cover is that you and I, friends, we live in a battlefield. And there's an enemy who hates you. 
He wants to steal, kill, and destroy everything that God has good for you. And he wants to put the the mask over your eyes so that you blame God for every bad thing that ever happens instead of looking to God for every good thing that ever happens. But here's the thing. God brings the good things to us most often through patient endurance and suffering. My favorite chapter in the entire Bible, I probably say it every week, but I think I mean it on this one, Romans chapter 8. I love it. I love it from beginning to end. I wish I had time to read the whole thing. I don't, but I'm going to read Romans 8 in the message translation, starting in verse 15. It says this, the resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant. Greeting God with a child like, what's next, Papa? God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is, and we know who we are, father and children. And we know we are going to get what's coming to us, not pain and suffering. Oh, no, 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 no. An unbelievable inheritance. We go through exactly what Christ goes through. If we go through the hard times with him, then we're certainly going to go through the good times with him. Do you get what Paul's saying? If you suffer in this life, Jesus suffered in this life. The difference is you and I are sinners. Part of our suffering is a byproduct of our choices. He never did anything, but he suffered. And if he suffered and never did anything, and yet now sits at the right hand of the Father, experiencing all the glories of heaven, Paul saying, you too, when you go through suffering, will experience all the glories of heaven. That's why he goes on, I don't think there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. In other words, the more you suffer, the more God seats deep into you this anticipation of joy that is just on the other side. The more you suffer, the more you go, man, man, I can't wait for heaven. You think suffering here is bad? Just wait for heaven. That's why he closes with this. I'll close with this. He kept going. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. Have you ever been pregnant? I know it's Father's Day, so obviously there are some of you who've had people in your lives been pregnant. You remember when the, like, the turkey's done look thing going on? Those last few weeks, I don't know what it was like for anybody. I've never been pregnant, but I watched my wife go through it. She did not look like she was having a fun time. She was worn out. You know, your back hurts. Everything hurts. You can't find a position to sleep in. It's suffering at every turn. There's pain. There's cramping. And here's what Paul's saying. The greater the pain gets, the more the joy's coming. Why? Well, my wife on our last, um, she had an epidural, and it wasn't working just right. So they tried to tweak it, and it didn't help. It didn't change anything. So finally, he came in and said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. We try not to do this very often. We're going to take it out and reinsert it. And at the same time that he said that, the doctor came in and said, too late. My poor wife gave birth with no meds there. No mas. No bueno. Muy mal. I don't speak Spanish. That's why I needed a translator. You know what? When we talk about our youngest Nehemiah with his wavy blonde hair and just amazing cackle that lights up a room, we don't talk about that. Occasionally it comes up, but far and away, it's 100 to 1, it's 1,000 to 1. My wife speaks of that little guy. She speaks of the joy, the joy. 
But the pain only lasted a moment, but the joy will last for eternity. Paul goes on. He says, the difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs, but it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing within us. We're also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That's why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. He said it, not me. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us. But the longer we wait, the larger we become, and the more joyful our expectancy. Do you get the analogy? It's beautiful, isn't it? I'll close here. It's been said that God had only one son without sin, but never had any sons without suffering. See, if you're visiting with us today and you're watching online and you're an atheist or an agnostic, you're not sure about God, especially not this Jesus dude, I'm sure today's message didn't convince you. Because basically, here's what I've said. Life is going to hurt. Christian and non-Christian, believer and unbeliever, there's going to be hard times. You're going to suffer. God is still good. And he has the power to save you. And he has the wisdom to know how. If you trust him, he will. It's not necessarily going to remove your pain. It's not going to bring dead people back. It's not going to make the cancer or disease go away. It's not going to put your family back together. See, all those things may still happen. They happen to believers. They happen to unbelievers. Here's what I do know. God is good. He has the power to save you, and he knows exactly how. If you'll trust him, there are good days ahead, an eternity full of them. In fact, God goes even further, and he says this in Psalms 34, verse 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. The righteous person faces many troubles, but the Lord comes to the rescue each time. For the Lord protects the bones of the righteous. Not one of them is broken. Calamity will surely destroy the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. But the Lord will redeem those who serve him. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. We're going to go into a time of communion. And um, if you're a Christian, this is a powerful time for you. You get to hold the cup the juice that represents the blood of Jesus, and you get to hold the bread that represents the body of Jesus. And what we're gonna do is eat and drink in the suffering of Christ, and we're not gonna do it in sadness. We're gonna do it in celebration. We're gonna do it with this air of expectation that what I'm eating right now is a baby on its way. That sounded really weird. <laughs> not what I meant. Drinking in the moment. How's that? It's expectation that my suffering will not be wasted. Now listen, if you're lost, not sure about God, Jesus in the room, I just want to encourage you in this moment, you can still take the communion. You can even cry out with an openness in your heart, God, I don't understand you. You don't make sense to me. And I just want to pray that God will help make sense to you. Let's pray. Father, right now, would you meet the believer in this place and encourage them? May we be reminded of the suffering of Jesus and we can turn to him in our hour of need and find an ever-present help, one who understands our pain and our struggle because he's been through it all. And God, for those in this room who just aren't sure about you, you are near to the brokenhearted. 
God, come near right now. Open up their hearts, their eyes, their mind. God, wrap your loving arms around them for just a moment, just a moment. Breathe life, speak life into them, and let them know this is not the end of your story. God, give them a message of hope. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.